All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Here's Johnny. Vanity. Definitely my favorite set. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. The power of Christ compels you! This is my boomstick! What's your favorite scary movie? I was like, I'm going to wait and change uh, when the credits are rolling. (laughs) For the listener who's not watching, um, while while we play the intro music, everything goes uh, like black for us. And there's like a countdown that happens. And during this time, (laughs) when uh, when when I can't really see what's going on on Daniel's screen, he puts on a Frankenstein's monster skull cap. And I see him, and here it is. <laughs> this is from a couple years ago um, when I worked at Houndstooth. We had a, a Houndstooth bar here in Tuscaloosa. We had bingo nights, and one time bingo, or it was either it was trivia night, and it was on Halloween. It was like on a Wednesday, and me and my co-host and all the bartenders decided to be sexy versions of um, the Universal. Horror, uh, the Universal movie horror monsters, and so I was sexy Frankenstein. I had I, I was deep V Frankenstein. Like I was, I had I had like a really like a T shirt I'd cut to like a really deep V, and like uh, but then I had like the suit with the with it all frayed out and everything, and a chain. It was fun. Very Tony Montana. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so good evening and welcome to Shiver, a horror movie podcast. Uh, we are your hosts, Sexy Frankenstein and the Goon, um, <laughs> otherwise known as Daniel DeBona and David Uyoa. And uh, we're here today. Uh, if you can't tell already by um, what you're seeing on either YouTube or Facebook Live, um, or just by looking at your your listening device, we're here to talk about the uh, the Bride of Frankenstein, the original 1935 Bride of Frankenstein. 1935. Like until you brought that up on last week's episode, I at least thought it was 40s. Like I I cannot believe that this movie is from ni- is from 35. And you know what's what's crazy is that these these early monster movies are um like it's they're so timeless because you can still watch them today like I've gone to Halloween parties where like you just put on all the monster movies yeah and and you just run through them and um it, it, they could have been made in the 30s 40s 50s 60s and it still feels like it's it's true to to that decade and part of that I feel is the the envelope that was pushed um and and a lot of that uh the the credit goes to Carl Lamely and Carl Lamely Jr the the guys who were running Universal Studios at that time right and um and so when uh like we we have to realize like Dracula which is the first one of these that came out in in the Universal monster cycle right that was 1930 wow. i mean we're we're talking about like the talkie 
was yeah. literally just invented, right? If you if you watched Dracula, I don't know when the last time you saw it was. Bela Lugosi? Yeah. Oh, there's God. Vir- I there's probably virtually no music. 15, 20 there's like, years. There's no music. There's there's a little bit of Swan Lake at the beginning, and a little bit of Swan Lake at the end. Right. And, and that's pretty much it, you know? So by the time James Whale comes out with Frankenstein – in 1931 right uh, and it's really just a couple months later um he's um i think better than todd browning in every single way todd browning is the guy who uh who directs dracula and whale really has an eye for um for for how to use the camera he's got an eye for lighting he's a big fan of german expressionism of the bauhaus movement uh coming out of germany yeah and so he like he is an artist right uh he's he's a he's a true artist in fact he invented the 360 degree panning shot oh it had, it, it had never been i mean Granted, how many fucking shots have been done at that time? But he invented the shot in Frankenstein, in the original Frankenstein, when when the monster uh, first wakes up, and you know he kind of yeah. hands around the room, and we're seeing his his perspective. That's that's the first time that had ever been done. Interesting. And, yeah, and and so his command of the camera, like his his visual language, I think is is just unparalleled. Uh, particularly for his time, which is why you watch some of these movies and it's very easy to forget that like Bride of Frankenstein is 1935. Yeah. Yeah. Like I I just, honestly, before, like before we even decided to do it and I like looked at it at all in my head, this was like a fifties movie just cause honest to God, like when I think about movies, like the fifties tends to be as far back, like as my brain goes, right? (laughs) Like I just, I'm just like, Oh, old movie, like the fifties. Like that's, that's, that's like as far back as I go. So then you were like, so then I was like, Oh no, I'm pretty sure it was for the fifties. So I just kind of glanced and I was like, Oh, it must be the forties, but no, for this to be the thirties. Now this was my first time watching it. Mm -hmm. And, um, First off, let me, let me just come out of the box and say this. For a movie called Bride of Frankenstein, um, not a lot of bride in no. this movie, <laughs> um, which was shocking. The movie's only like an hour long, right? It's like an hour and five minutes long. Um, I think it's but, a little longer. It's like an hour and 15, just uh, right around there. Right. It, but, it um, barely qualifies as feature film. Yeah. Um, but I was ridiculously impressed. All throughout this movie, uh, I I I had seen Frankenstein, right? So I was familiar with uh, Karloff in in this role, but I was not ready for what he brought to this role, right? Like I knew him as Frankenstein, and I, I knew what he was like as Frankenstein. And this movie is this movie is next level. Um, this it movie is. was is beautiful. Uh, it's, it's, it's shot amazingly the, you know, I, I don't even, it, it's, it's all practical effects, you know, like even when there are special effects, but it, they're all done very well. Um, I was, I was impressed by, by the, the acting, honestly, you go back and you watch old stuff so much and you, you, you go and stuff gets is real stilted and things like that. Everything that was supposed to feel natural felt natural. I 
Now, I will and say everything my... that was camp felt camp. Okay, it was and that's what I was going to say. Like, because I got the impression that the times that I was laughing, I was laughing with the movie. Like, yeah. I was laughing because there were things that were supposed to be campy. Like, every time that housekeeper would scream. Oh, Minnie, she fucking steals the show Dude, every time. And it was, and it was always so perfect. It was always so perfect because it fit for her to scream there, but it was yeah. funny, but it was supposed to be funny. And I had to check the windows, right? Because it was just, <laughs> and there were so many awesome things about this movie that I was not expecting, that I was not really ready for. I didn't know what to expect. I especially did not expect for the movie to just be build up to the bride because <laughs> And, you know, iconically, The Bride of Frankenstein is, uh, picked movie-wise, The Bride of Frankenstein, image-wise, is as iconic as Frankenstein. So I just kind of expected that she would be around the whole movie. Well, and, and she, I, she's always included in the pantheon yeah. of Universal Monsters. It, it's Dracula, Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, you know the, the Invisible Man, the the werewolf, the mummy, and the creature and from the Black Lagoon. The and and then they they throw the Phantom of the Opera in there, even though the Phantom's from their silent era, right? So, uh, but she has significantly less screen time than every other monster. Yeah, uh, like five minutes. Yeah, and so I uh, like it was. What was odd was there was. There was no part of me that was disappointed in that, though. There was no moment where I was watching this movie and I was like, okay, but when are we going to get to the bride? Because this was so amazingly paced and so wonderfully built that I was always so sucked into what was happening in that moment. And for an hour and 15 minutes, a lot happens in this movie. And her and, presence is, like, always there. Yeah. It's and, always, like you said, building towards yes. And so I was never like, get to it. I was like, oh man, like what is next? Like it's the movie itself is a process of building the bride and the, the blood, sweat and tears that went into it from all angles. And that I think impressed me the most was the fact that while the movie is about building this woman, the movie itself is presented in a way where you are building the Bride of Frankenstein, whether it be in your head because you've caught like a glimpse. You know, I I don't know what movie posters were like in the 30s, but now, you know, it's like in my head, I had what she was going to look like and I kept waiting. And then you're seeing little bits that go into her. And and so it was it was that part was incredible to me. I I am always hit and miss with old movies. I do tend to like them, but as, as they get older, sometimes I'm like, you know, <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, okay. I understand. but this, this one didn't do that to me, man. Um, reputation wise, you know, I understand why she's included in that pantheon of monsters. I, I understand why, why people go back and talk about this. I spent some time reading about it today. And this is a movie that like, no one has anything bad to say about it unless they set out to not like the movie. And yeah. I feel like <laughs> that was, I feel like that was, that was absolutely earned. You know, there's things can age like wine or they can age like bread. Right. And this, this age is like wine. This movie is timeless. It was so good. I am so glad to hear you say that because I am a universal monster freak. 
Um, like it is, uh, I'm, I'm one of these like, but actually guys who are <laughs> like, Oh, no one's ever done what Marvel did with the MCU. And I'm like, okay, yes, but actually universal studios did it in the 1930s with the monsters. Right. So so fuck that right? <laughs> not to take anything away from what kevin feige's done because you know you can't fucking compare right right but i mean this uh, this is such an amazing series like not just um frankenstein and the bride of frankenstein as as a as an original and a sequel but there are four solo frankenstein movies and they there might be a slight drop in quality from the second and third one uh the son of frankenstein uh which was not directed by james whale uh but does feature boris karloff as the monster um and there might be uh another step off in quality between that and the fourth one that goes to frankenstein but I'm talking about like there are four movies here and each of them are fucking bangers. Yeah. Like you you can you can marathon all four of those movies and it'd be fantastic. Same thing with the Dracula movies, same thing with the mummy movies. Uh, and and then when the Wolfman comes in later, I mean, you go from Wolfman to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and now you you start getting that like you know, cross um, you know. Uh, cross series uh, yeah. features going on and then it goes into House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula before it goes into Abbott and Costello I was about to say meets, then Abbott and Costello Frankenstein and everyone mix. comes in it's like fuck man I love this series what they did with the Universal Monsters is, is something that um, my grandparents can appreciate that my parents can appreciate that I can appreciate that my son appreciates Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is one of his favorite fucking movies, you know? And, um, is it partially because I put it on for him? Yeah. I don't know that he would have <laughs> like figured that out. Otherwise, you know, the fucking YouTubers that he's watching playing with, you know, fucking Minecraft, th that's not going to do it. Right. But, but I put it on for him and he loved it, you know? So, uh, so I'm I'm glad that you feel that way because I do feel like this movie, uh, maybe more than any other Universal monster movie, does earn its reputation. Yeah, dude. I it like I said, I was just I, I was I I I expected to like it, but I was floored. I just for for something that's what I mean, 80, 85, 86 years old now. Like I just. Unbelievable. Don't ask me to math. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and agree with you. Yeah, there we go. So, <laughs> so one thing about this movie is it is a continuation of Frankenstein. I mean, it literally barring one scene at the beginning where we actually meet Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and Percy Shelley. Um, mm -hmm. It picks up exactly where the last one left off with the, the burning windmill. So how does it work? For you, when you think about it contributing to the original, how do you view this story as itself? Like, does, does it stand well by itself? Does it only work as a piece of a two-part story? Like, how, how? what do you think just about the story in general? So, I, th I think they do a pretty good job of 
because Lord Byron does this when when he's talking uh, to uh, Percy and and Mary Shelley, and he kind of sums up the first Frankenstein yeah. movie really really quickly. They pulled a like, Silent Night, Deadly Night two on us. It's a Silent Night, Deadly Night two. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. So like you almost don't need to watch the first one. However, I am such a huge fan of the first one. And the first one, like the tone, is very different. Yes, this, and that's this, what I went in expecting was the tone from just Frankenstein. That first Frankenstein is straight horror. Yes, um, and uh, very, uh, very much like you know the the drama is there, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was an adaptation of the stage play that uh, that had been put on in like nineteen. 19- 18 or something like that. Right. And um, uh, which I believe Karloff played the monster there. And that's that's how he was cast, kind of similar to how um, Lugosi was cast as Dracula, mm-hmm. having played Dracula on stage. So um, I think that because we get this like really great summation of the first movie, um, we're given enough information for this to work on its own. But because it does continue the story of the first one, it it also works as that continuation. Right. So I th- I think that this is uh, like when you think of the most perfect sequels, I think this is up there with the most perfect sequels, not just because uh, as a sequel, it works really well, but also as its own movie, it works really well between that first Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. You get about 80%, I'd say, if I were, you know, just throwing numbers at a wall, <laughs> right? Uh, I'd say you get about 80% of the original Frankenstein novel. Right. Because there's, um, in that novel, you do get an articulate Frankenstein. Yes. Who, um, who's somewhat of a philosopher. It's like he's a cigar. He, yeah, he's intelligent. <laughs> and we, we get a lot of that here, like the blind hermit. That appears in the in the novel, you know, um, there's there's more to the novel. There's that framing story, which that is what's missing here. Um, And the fact that, you know, he doesn't feel anything resolved by, um, you know, killing, even though he doesn't kill uh, Dr. Frankenstein uh, in the novel, Dr. Frankenstein dies and the monster doesn't feel resolution. Right. And you can see that in the way that it was filmed here, right? Uh, where it's like the monster is like, you dying isn't going to make me feel any better. So you go, right. you live, you know? Which, I, I mean, in in the list of, like, greatest last lines in movie history, you know, uh, you know, you go, you live, we stay dead. You know, we are, we, we belong dead. You live. I mean, that's fucking amazing yeah yeah and did did karloff does not get enough credit for for his acting yeah did not see that coming either like just man like the story of this was i now I, i will admit i did not know what to expect from the story in this movie. Like I said, I kind of, I didn't know if it was going to be like the two of them rampaging. Like I didn't (laughs) know what to expect, but to get this, to get the story of this guy, Pretorius, who is making homunculi and, and, and just becoming obsessed with, with making a mate and just, 
everything that went into it. Frankenstein finding uh, the monster, excuse me, finding some sort of redemption arc, you know, for because, you know, in the first one, yes, he drowned the little girl, but it was a mistake, right? They were throwing right. flowers in the water. Logical step. I'm out of flowers. You go. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying for you, monster. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's 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 a redemption arc here which is fascinating, mm -hmm. you know, to the to the point that he jumps in the water and saves somebody uh, at one point. Like, now he knows... Again, from the novel. Yeah, like, now he knows what drowning is. Drowning's bad, right? Like, people should yeah. just be in water like that. Yeah. And, and then the whole concept of a town not willing to accept that he is, you know, that, that he is trying to redeem, and he is this, you know, and that, they... That he the, is... Yeah, that he is. That exactly. he is. Yeah, True that he enough. exists. Yeah. And so there was there was just, this movie was so much deeper than I was ready for. And I think that that's what I've kept me so, so enthralled. I've got so many notes to talk about. <laughs> like, it, it was, <laughs> I, I just, I was, I I, I loved the, the subplot of him and the hermit. I thought that that was incredible. Um, when we get to talking about James Whale, I ended up reading a lot about him today. Um, guy He's was a fascinating, fascinating. yeah, just just a yeah. very interesting dude. Um, but there there were just so many things that I didn't expect from this movie, and I feel like there, you know, we live in, in you know, we all live on the internet. We do this on the internet mm -hmm. once or twice a week. It's impossible to go so long. I remember when No Way Home came out back in December. It, like it came out, you know, they did like the Thursday early screenings, and I was planning on seeing it the next week. And I was like, mm, I live in the internet. Like I'm not going to be able to make it until Tuesday <laughs> without a spoiler. I managed to make it this far, you know, 38 years into my life without having this movie spoiled for me. Yes, it existed before the internet. And yes, it's one that I guess people just don't talk about as much, but it, it's incredible that it can still hit and still surprise because let's face it, how, how many times have we watched modern horror where we're like, oh, well, this reminds me of this and that, and they mm -hmm. kind of did this and they could have done that better, stuff like that, because we're just there's so, everything's a copy of a copy at this point it's fascinating to go back and see where all of these tropes and all of these ideas came from like to to yeah. go back to the roots of all of that and be like no this isn't a copy of anything because this was the first time it was done everything i can think of that might kind of be like this is a copy of right from here yeah there's there's so much to this and i um i've seen this movie numerous times this is likely the universal monster movie that I rewatch most often. And I rewatch pretty much all of them a lot. Like right. even like the obscure sequels, like the, the mummy's tomb. <laughs> sure. I, I've seen it at least as many times as I have fingers on this hand. Right. <laughs> the mummy's hand is also another good one. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> um, this is the first time I actually sit down. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to talk to someone. And the it, it will be recorded for posterity. Right. You know, a, about this movie. So let me make notes. So for like we were talking about the, the hour and 15 minutes that there are in this movie, it took me 
probably close to two hours to watch this because I would see something and I'd pause and I'd write it down and I'd see something and I'd pause and I'd write it down and I'd do this over and over and over again. So a little, uh, since we're talking about story, I want to go into some of the little story yes. that, that I found. So what I thought was really interesting, like almost right off the bat, when Elizabeth first starts going a little nuts in the room, right, that she sees the specter of death, the shadow of death, she yes. called it, right? She says it's there, it's approaching, uh, and then she starts laughing hysterically and she falls into Henry's lap. The moment that happens, there's a knock on the door and Pretorius is coming into the house. She is somehow foreseeing pretorius as as this like bringer of death and right. it's such a great moment of foreshadowing right and um when when we get to like the technical things when we start talking about james whale himself uh we'll go into that some more but um the guy that plays pretorius uh ernest Dessinger, what a fucking performance he dude gives. just absolutely knocked it out of the park it like it just again it was if he was on screen nothing else mattered because you you needed to know like what he was saying there's uh there's another moment when he's being introduced many calls him a queer looking old man and this this to me is one of the more interesting things about this movie um is James Whale is one of the first, I don't know if he is the first, but he is one of the first openly gay uh, filmmakers in Hollywood, right? So this right. is 1935, right? And people have said that anyone who was anyone in Hollywood knew that he was gay, that he didn't, um, he didn't kind of like put it out there. He didn't tell anyone, but he certainly didn't hide it. You know, he lived with his partner. Uh, he never denied having a partner. And so when um a lot of this is made public knowledge in in the 70s and the 80s there's like this new reading of some of his movies uh you know particularly the old dark house and bride of frankenstein which upped the camp factor quite a bit right right and the fact that many calls him queer looking now it's like okay so is there some sort of gay relationship between henry and pretorius because there's clearly history there yes and 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 in my opinion it's not just that he was once his mentor right there's there's something there that henry would rather leave behind right yes um, yes but he, but like he's, he, he's running from something in, in, yeah. in, in that relationship and yet he still can't run away from it. In fact, he like actively runs towards it. Like he leaves his wife to be <laughs> to yes. go be with this guy. You know, he leaves her on their wedding night to go uh, like finish this this experiment, you know, later in the movie. Right. You know, so uh, which I like that they just glanced over the wedding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't get to see the wedding. It's, it's not there. important. They're no. fucking married now. Just you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's great. You know, um, the that oh, line. Well, hey, before you get too far from that, that is a rabbit hole that I fell deep into today. So, friend of the, the show timeline? ish, huh? The timeline? No, no. Just, uh, that like it's just no. The 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 idea that Bride of Frankenstein is like a thinly veiled giant gay parable 
Like, yeah. there's, <laughs> there is a, there is a massive community out there of, okay. So friend of the show ish, um, mm-hmm. you know, host of pedal. Let me tell you, he's been on here with us before, uh, you know, very, very proud and outspoken gay man. We love ish. The the I did I did reach out to Ish to see if he could be on today, and he unfortunately couldn't. Oh, okay. Uh, You know, just because I feel like you know a a movie that has so much gay sub subtext. Yes, we should have you know a a, a gay man on here to talk about this. The gay horror community is huge, and and man, when they've got something that they can latch on to, damn, do they sink their teeth in? Like (laughs) this, I was amazed at like some of the write-ups and stuff i found today like like people who this movie changed their lives because they felt represented you know like watching something from 1935 and Mm -hmm. and watching it in modern time and feeling represented and it's and it's you're right it's it's subtext right nobody's ever outwardly gay in this movie but yeah you've you've got those two you've got that relationship between frank and uh, between the monster and the hermit and yeah. and and all of these things that people have latched onto, and we've talked about this in the past, like the idea of once the art leaves the artist's desk, right? Like that, the last time that the writer is in charge of it is the last time he touches ink to paper. And it's amazing what this movie has become to a lot of people, but man, to the gay horror community, this movie is huge. It it really is, and and I quite frankly don't care what Wales' partner said about his work. His partner right. said that he was always first and foremost an artist, not a gay artist, and that uh, he never knew him to put any um, any subtext in his uh, in his films. Um, with with all due respect. I I don't see a way to to read this film without a gay reading. Yeah. In fact, in fact, before I knew that James Whale was gay, I was watching this movie and thinking, "Oh, there's definitely something going on." Yeah. Between Pretorius yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, Frankenstein. I, I, and I also had no idea he was gay until I started reading about him today. But I did the same thing yesterday. I was like, "This, like, especially like." Uh, there would there would be these moments where like Pretorius was like when he would be approached and and he would kind of he would he would withdraw you know mm-hmm. like there were there were these little there were these moments and he would just kind of pull back and it was and it wasn't like a nervous like a beaten puppy thing it was it was a it was a tension that was that was crazy. There's also in in Pretorius and I, I mean he is he is the villain right. Um, but there's also in him um, this liberality, right? There's not this conservatism in him that you see in the others at that time, right? Where uh, I love it's it's such a great joke and it's repeated, you know, a couple of times. You know, uh, it is my only weakness. Yeah, you know, so he loves to indulge himself you know, in all things. And that's the way that I, I read his character, that whatever he wants, he's going to get, you know, by whatever means necessary. And if that's a male lover, then it's a male lover. And if it's creating a a, a partner for 
a person they have created, right? Where like a, a, a gay man wouldn't traditionally be able to procreate, right? And yet here is this life that I right. brought you. And now you will be able to create life that man has brought you, not that God has brought you, right? And I love that line, you know, to to a world of God and monsters, you know, which yes. f- follows the, you know, Jin, it is my only weakness. Jin, yes. you know? Jin, that, that, uh, was, that was the first time, like, <laughs> just like, that was the first time I noticed, like, it was happening, like, again and again, right? Like that, yeah, yeah that, like, when, when he said it with the Jin, I was like, wait a minute. And then, yeah, I was like, oh, God, this is so good. Like, because you're right, it was, you know, he, he had a lot of only weaknesses, and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I love this idea where he says, you know, to a world of God and monsters, gods and monsters. And I wonder if he saw himself as a god or as a monster. Because I uh, the the gods rule. Right. And he's creating. But I don't think that he sees God as a ruler. Right. Uh, Does he see himself and his creations as the same beautiful thing right Ah. it's to me it's 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 an interesting way of looking at him it's a question that i don't think can be answered i don't even know if it's a question that needs to be asked but for me it was an interesting one uh where you know does he see himself as a god or a monster is he persecuted by society because he says he's been thrown out of the university right is he is he a social outcast just like the monster is like frankenstein's monster or is he the god that's creating this thing is he is he so misunderstood by everyone because he's superior or is he so misunderstood by everyone because he is a monster like the monster i think right. that's a that's an interesting philosophical question that i have no answer to right um to go back to the idea of the blind hermit right i love that there's this uh one to go back to the the gay subtext right like there is definitely some sort of marriage happening there right yes. where each each one is getting something from the other you know uh but it, it it's also this beautiful thing where like it, it takes a, a blind man literally to see the man inside the monster right. right where he's not immediately repulsed by what he sees because even the monster is repulsed by what he sees when he sees his reflection yes and 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 the hermit calls him his friend you know uh and and he's uh like absolutely flabbergasted that anyone would come in and remove his friend from his presence you know uh and i i love that and and the way that the religious iconography is used in that scene i think is fantastic because a lot of the stuff that's done here religiously i don't know if it's supposed to be taken seriously or if it's supposed to border on blasphemy right um because there is a cross in the background right and um there's there's this talk of uh of of god at that moment but the cross is askew it's not, not it, it's, it's not it's not yeah it's it's not perfect it's 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 hanging off to a side right and we see we see earlier like uh the the crucifixion of the monster mm-hmm. right but it's it's not man and it's not god right it yeah. is a monster right so it's it's like this this bastardization of these signs this this iconography that to me adds this this sort of um, you know, whale is 
whether consciously or subconsciously, and I, I think he's smart enough that this was a conscious decision, uh, putting these ideas out there that it's like, hey, question authority. Don't necessarily go with what everyone is telling you to do because it's okay for you to uh, to question that authority, right? Um, and I, I that scene, that kind of extended scene with him and the hermit. There's this beautiful bit of acting that's done by Karloff, where the the men that come in and remove the hermit tell him this is the the monster that's been killing people all across the countryside. He was made by Baron Frankenstein from dead bodies. You see this realization on Karloff's face where it's like, that's what I am. Right. Like he knew what he was, but he didn't know what he was. Right. And he's, he's got this thing where it's like, I'm, I'm less than alive. Like I'm, I'm not alive. I'm not dead. Like, what am I? So when he finally meets with Pretorius and he says, love dead, hate living. Yes. You know, it's like, I didn't ask to be here. I didn't ask to be what I am, which again, this is, you know, going into this like gay reading, you know, it's it, like, talk about one of the most persecuted peoples on, uh, you know, in history, you know, and, you know, I don't see a way where this isn't James Whale saying, you know, uh, this is, this is our story. Right. You know, and I don't know that Whale saw himself as Pretorius. I don't know that Whale saw himself as uh, Henry Frankenstein. I don't know that he saw himself as the monster either, but there's definitely a little bit of him everywhere. Which is, which is, I think, why this movie is so often like associated with him, even more than The Invisible Man, even more than the original Frankenstein. It's, it's this one. Well, and one thing I think that that lends itself towards reading into the subtext of this movie and finding these things that aren't outwardly said, I think that it establishes very early in the movie. That that's what he wants you to do. When we when we open the movie to that scene with the Shelleys and with Lord Byron, and uh, Lord Byron is talking to Mary Shelley about uh, the, the the story of Frankenstein, and she she outwardly says too many people miss the message yeah. of that story, and that it was about the dangers of man playing God. So they immediately tell you, like, look, there's. Things that we're not going to say that you're just supposed to get out of this. And so I think you would be a fool to think, oh, okay, so now they're just telling me to watch for that in this one. I think that the idea of that is, so now watch what we're trying to tell you without telling you. Because yeah. now we have another story. And it's on you to realize what we're getting at. And so it to, to say that right at the beginning and point out this idea that so much was missed. Yes, it's scary, but it's so much more than that. To say that at the beginning immediately had me watching for what the undertone of this whole thing was going to be. And I did not realize that I'm that, you know, I quite possibly stumbled onto just this this massive thing when I started to have these ideas that there was definitely this this gay undertone to the mm -hmm. movie. But I do think that that is part of that. You're talking, you know, you're talking about uh, just this idea of Marvel. Marvel didn't create the the cinematic universe. That you know, 
well before I think the term meta was used for like yeah. art in art, <laughs> that was meta, right? It's like, mm-hmm. no, in this movie, we're going to talk about this other movie, but we're now we're people telling you the story that you're about to see as a movie. And the people that we're playing are the people who wrote this story. Yes. Yeah. Because the, the real life story of how Frankenstein was written is that it was a dark and stormy night and Lord Byron was with the Shelleys and that they had a bet to see who could write the scariest story and that's where her idea for frankenstein comes from you know so like it's so incredibly meta yeah it's fucking crazy i like that was that was like the very the very first thing it's like it starts and he talks and referred to and i noticed that lord byron and mary shelley and percy shelley were listed in the credits for the movie and i was like wait mary shelley's in this movie and then it opens with that scene and i was like what what is happening like again completely floored at how ahead of its time it was um you're talking about oh go ahead did you expect her to be the the bride no no and and i was uh one of the things i loved about this is so in the original frankenstein it just says and as the monster bunch of question marks yeah right so now with this one like it opens and it's like karloff is the monster but then it's like as the bride question marks and i was like (laughs) oh shit that's dope (laughs) like i was like i was like now that's that's cool right like he's established and i would throw his name at the top but we're still going to give you that mystery like we had in the first one did not in a thousand years expect it to be that same actress um this was apparently uh, according to elsa lanchester who um she lived into the 80s so um there were a number of interviews that she was able to give like once people started to like really become interested in documenting how films were made and stuff like that um and according to her um she was contacted by whale because whale had worked with her husband, Charles Lawton, um, who himself was real big in horror, uh, directed horror movies and stuff like that. Uh, horror movie directed one. Um, (laughs) and, um, uh, she had, she had never worked in, uh, film. She had worked on stage, but not on film. And he contacted her. He, He desperately wanted her to be Mary Shelley. And uh, the one of his conditions for coming on as director, because Carl Lamely was like, you have to direct this movie. And he says, fine, here are my conditions. Like that's like he he was coming at him hard. He's like, you want me to do it? I, I need all these conditions met. He demanded that she play both roles. So that was one of the oh, things wow. that was his idea. And, and, and it was apparently to represent that even um, – like the the most unassuming, the most beautiful of people that you would never think can have the darkest of imaginations and 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 can create these incredibly terrifying stories. Man, I'm just like I'm just now looking at Elsa Lanchester's like filmography. Like she worked consistently from twenty from 1925 till 1980. And when I say consistently, I mean 
not almost not a year went by that she didn't make a movie until the 70s. And then in the 70s, she still made one in 71, two in 73, one in 76, and one in 79. But still working hard. <laughs> but I mean, from I mean, from 25 to 80 for 55 years, she was at least making shorts or movies every year. She this was man, this woman defined or like early American hustle. This is insane. Yeah. Um, Including Mary Poppins. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> blew me away. Like, I'm like, I need to find that because I remember the role, but just yeah, in no way connected it to this. Um, mm-hmm. but like I said, just for a movie to be this old and for it to be. And, and I don't want to say for it to be billed as one thing because it was never billed to me, you know, as a love story, you know, right. to, you know, it is about finding a mate and stuff like that. I guess it's just, that's kind of what I expected it to be. So for it to end up being so much more and to be so different than just really anything I had, I expected, I think that this, this story very much stands alone. I think that it's an amazing continuation. I think that you're absolutely right. I would feel comfortable just sitting down and being like, look, you've never seen Bride of Frankenstein. Give me an hour and 15 minutes of your time. I know you <laughs> like movies and I know you'll like this. And I would just throw it on even if they'd never seen the original because they're going to get everything out of it. Yeah. Do you have an hour and 15 minutes to talk about our Lord and Savior, James Whale? <laughs> <laughs> um. And, and there, there is, you know, that romantic subplot there. There, there, there is a love story there, you know, between yes. Henry and Elizabeth. Um, I think between Henry and Pretorius, between Henry and the monster, between Pretorius and the monster, and between the monster and the bride. You know, there, there is a lot of love to go around. It's certainly, you know, one of the the larger, you know, most in your face themes that's there. Uh, but you're right. Like it is kind of surprising because you expect one thing and, um, and then you, you watch it and you're like, it's not what I expected at all, but, and, and, and yet, and yet it is the other thing that I think is really, um, surprising people don't go into this movie expecting there to be the level of special effects that there are, um, so there's um when you talk about special effects i think you have to make a, a distinction between um like a, a special effect and makeup because there's right. special effects and then there's like like makeup effects right um even more than the original frankenstein this movie leans into special effects and it leans into it hard in certain scenes um between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. James Whale directs The Old Dark House, which has uh, some special effects, but it's really um, like more simple practical effects. But he also directs in 1933, The Invisible Man. And that's a movie that I think today still holds up. Yes. Where you watch it today and you're like, I can't believe that movie was made in 1933 because it could have come out in the 80s and I'd still buy it. Yep. Right. Um, and what's more impressive is that today that shit would be done with computers and you wouldn't even think twice about it. Right. So uh, there's uh, there's a number of special effects shots and like just a 
fuck ton of special effects makeup by the incredible Jack Pierce in this movie, right? So um, there's really only one question I need to ask, which is how have these special effects and these makeup effects aged, do you think? So one thing I'm always wary of when I watch old movies nowadays is there's always that threat of upscaling you know, ruining something that would have been hidden when mm-hmm. clarity was not what it is today. So, um, you know, I watched the the iTunes version of this. So, you know, it wasn't filling my screen. It wasn't 1080p, which just, just sidebar, the fact that you can go on YouTube now and watch like Night of the Living Dead and it's as clear as like almost anything made today <laughs> still blows my mind. Anyway, yeah. so... <laughs> um, So I I was I was nervous about that because I was like, you know, there were a lot of times, uh, you know, where they would be like, "Ah, they're not going to really be able to see that. It was it it holds up so, so well, like I said, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that this was, you know, like an upscan, let's call it 720p, right? Um, Or just however it was, it still looks so good. I never felt like I was I think this comes from like an 8k remaster. Okay. And so, but I was like, I was never, I never found a moment where I thought anything was, was laughable. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I thought was just absolutely incredible was I noticed over the course of the movie that um, the, the makeup of, of uh, the monsters injuries, the injuries changed. Like, like he was healing. And so it, now that that little thing that little thing brings this to a whole nother level because we had one time back uh back on geekmore one time we were doing zombie movies and you and i had a conversation about like whether or not frankenstein's monster is a zombie or a golem or or any of this this movie elevates him past those statuses because he's not just something that was brought to life like because he can move and is sentient he's brought to life and he's living and his Mm -hmm. body is working and to see the makeup change and to watch him heal as it goes on and and also the fact you know he learned to talk um but (laughs) but that that's 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 another level of living, right? Because it's easy to think that Frankenstein's monster becomes reincarnate or becomes not reincarnated. He just becomes to life. And then like, but because he's made of dead bodies, like he's just going to slowly decay. And then could you get that zombie idea in your head? But that's very much not what this is. And the fact that he healed over the course of this movie, and it was just minute things, but it's that amazing touch that, that, Honestly, I I never would have thought to do that, you know, and and it's just but it but it wasn't so small that I didn't notice it. It was it was just enough that it that it caught your attention but didn't detract from the movie. That I thought was amazing. Um I love I fucking love that opening scene that's like I'm guessing it was miniatures kind of looked like it was miniatures of the castle and the camera's kind of flying in towards the castle and then suddenly you're inside and and it's yeah. a dark and stormy night 
but it just it looks so cool and i don't know maybe that's just like the horror fan in me and and you know like maybe somebody who's not super into it would have thought that that looked laughable but it was such a cool little scene and again you go back to this idea of things being tropey and now suddenly you find you've reached the roots of it like yeah, sure, the opening scene of The Shining is great with the flying in and then eventually zooming in on the Overlook, but it's like, look what they did in 1935 yeah. with like a camera and yeah, like like a model, but they still made it awesome, but you still get that vibe of the big open world closing in until you're just inside this castle because this is all taking place in this, this, this story, right? So I think it, a lot of that has to do with the fact that you had to know how to shoot in black and white film. Right. And, and knowing your aspect ratio, because you're not working in like super panorama, like you are these days, right? right? You're working with a fucking cube. Yes. And, and you have to know how to use that and you can use it to create claustrophobia. Yes. And that's, that's, that's what that shot really does. You know, so you have that verticality of the castle. And as you keep coming in and zooming in on that castle, what you're, what you're creating is that, that fucking tension of like, what, why am I shrinking? Yes. Right? The screen is shrinking. Why am I, why am I getting in here? And you're getting into the tension with those characters. It's, it's brilliant the way that that special effect is done. Yeah. Like that, like just, just, I mean, for, from that moment, I was, you know, I was just, I was so ready but, you know, I, I kept waiting to, like, find a seam, you know, like right here, if you're watching, you know, my, my seam there needs to be touched up. But the 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 makeup was was seamless. The the effects when they were used were so great, like the shot of the and I mean, I guess, it, you know, it, it's effects. It's just the way it was done. But the when the the like car like slab that the bride is on is coming down. And just the way that that's shot and everything's angled and you're not looking straight at it coming down. And like I said, I guess it's you know more of a camera thing, but that scene was just so amazingly done that the the special effects and stuff like that of, you know, like little, uh, you know, Van de Graaff generators and stuff going off to make mm -hmm. lightning, like that stuff doesn't even matter because you're just so affixed on that one spot, in, in on that one thing. It was... I, and a I, lot of those machines were reused from the first movie. Right. So like a lot of those like lightning effects that were created, uh, you know, a lot of the, the beeps and the boops and the, you know, pulling the cranks and all that stuff. They're, they're all from those, those original machines. You know, it, it, it really does. It, you're right. It is partly like camera tricks. It is partly, um, you know, set design, which isn't necessarily special effects, but it all ties in together. Yeah. And so it was, this is not this is not a movie that I ever felt for one second special effects and makeup were ever bogged down by the fact that I was now seeing it in, in you know, the clearest possible way. <laughs> uh, you know, the same can't be said for Star Trek, the original series, you know, like you'll watch right. you'll watch that in high def and it's like, yeah, it's a zipper. But <laughs> <laughs> that that never happened in this movie. And that I think is, is the most telling thing you could say about the special effects. And part of it is the amount of money that the Laneleys like just threw at these movies. Um, and when you adjust for inflation, it's still not an awful lot of money. Like we're, we're only talking about like, you know, 
10 or 12 million dollars in today's money that uh that was spent on the movie but um when you know what you're doing i mean i i guess it works you know um the i talked a little bit about how Elsa Lanchester, you know, gave lots of interviews about this. She spoke about uh, the the process to get in makeup for uh, for the bride, and that she absolutely hated working with Jack Pierce as <laughs> as the the makeup artist. And unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of people have said this. They said that he thought of himself kind of like like a Doctor Pretorius type, where he was, uh, you know, a god creating a monster. Um, <laughs> But but I mean, fuck the guy. The guy was brilliant, you know, yeah. so I, I think he kind of earned the right to do that, you know, um, like he was he was a guy who came up with uh, the transformation effect for uh, for the Wolfman, you know, they, oh, would, bas- okay. they would basically leave um, leave him clamped down and uh, they would leave the camera exactly where it was. And then he'd go and apply the makeup frame by frame. Good Lord. Yeah. And it would take hours, hours to do this. Um, you know, so uh, I feel fucking terrible for him. Sometimes they break for lunch and leave them there. Are <laughs> <laughs> hey, you good? You, you need a sandwich or something? Or yeah. Oh, you, you got the teeth in. Ah, we should have we should ate lunch before you got the teeth in. Yeah. Oh, no. Live and learn. Piece, piece of ham there. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's terrible, you know. But um, I guess when you love your craft, you know, um, you know, which kind of sucks because, you know, his father, Lon Lon Chaney Sr. used to like do his own makeup. He was like the guy before Jack Pierce. Right. You know, Uh, and then Jack Pierce comes along and he's like, ah, no way you're upstaging me. You know, (laughs) Uh, your father had me before. I'm going to get I'm going to get you, you know, and um, and and I guess that's how that happens. And Um, Another thing when you're looking at the makeup and, and we kind of talked about this, you know, before we started going was uh, there's something to be said about how different the bride looked from the monster in, in all aspects down She's to the fact glamorous. That, yes, exactly. She's beautiful. She's yeah. gorgeous. Mm-hmm. She's gorgeous. And also, she's still stitched together. You know, you yes. see it on, on her neck. Um, you know, you, you see it on her jawline, but uh, they make her beautiful. They do. And also it's, it's easy to look back on it being so long ago and be like, man, this guy really created an iconic look, you know, in the bride, but the, to have that idea, just the white streak going up through the hair, you know, just that look that's, that's been in the Simpsons and just any, any, any tv show where a family has dressed up you know Mm -hmm. for halloween a mom has worn this you know this hair this the hair is is as iconic as dracula's cape and so Mm -hmm. it's just it's such a cool thing that yeah that they just came up with and they were like this is how it's got to look and then they made it happen and they pulled it off flawlessly and they they used they incorporated her own hair into like the costume piece 
Right. It was like a wire frame that they put on her head and they wrapped her hair around and then they threw more hair on top of it, you know, um, and it makes sense. It's like if you were electrocuted, your hair would be yeah. like, standing up, you know, and that's exactly what this is. But it gives her this like, you know, Queen Nefertiti look. Yeah. And and it makes her like even more alluring than she is as um, uh, as as Mary Shelley. Oddly. Yeah. You know, it's 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 weird. Um, and, and that was something that apparently was cut by the censors uh, back in the 30s. There was too much chest. Really? Her, her as, as Mary Shelley. Yeah, they were like, ah, you got to cut that. You got to cut that scene. Well, uh, what's interesting, you talk about the censors. While reading about this today, I read that there are there are there's a lot of the horror elements and the scary elements in this movie that had this not been sold as a horror movie, the censors would have been more likely to cut. Like apparently during this time, like when you were when you were pushing something as a horror film, they were a little bit more lenient with the violence and things like that that you can get away with, which is another element of this movie where the envelope is really push there's a lot of death here yes there is a lot of death and a lot of violence and especially by 30 standards and apparently mm -hmm. the reason that the censors let a lot of that go is they're like well, guys it's, it's, it's supposed to be a scary movie like right. you gotta let us scare people and yeah. so they, they let this stuff go so it, it's also you know it's it was it was another it was another idea where knowing what you were selling and who you were selling it to was so important. And I, I think a lot of those kill effects, if you can call them kill effects, right? Um, Cause it's really just ragdolls that are getting tossed, right. uh, you know, from, from place to place. Uh, they work so well because you can bathe it in darkness. Yes. Right. Um, when, uh, when, when the henchman is thrown off from, from Frankenstein's, uh, laboratory, right. And he just fucking falls and like, he just like ass over tea kettle. Like it's, it's <laughs> fucking, it's like, oh my God, like that's brutal, dude. Yeah. You know, and, and it probably wouldn't look great if it was well lit, but it was properly lit. Right. Mm -hmm. There was there was enough shadow and enough darkness for for the effect to to, to really take effect. You know, um, for me, the one that gets me every time the effect, that, like I still think it's like, fuck, that looks really good. Like even by today's standards, like it, it, it looked like it would be in a low budget movie today. Right. You know, uh, is I always call them. Uh, Pretorius's Lilliputians, <laughs> which is essentially what they are. The his his creations, his yeah, creatures, his, his homunculi, his homunculi. Yeah, I, love I mean, that he, word. he 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 grew them from cultures. They're hum, they're homunculi. Yeah, you know, um, and the fact that they have like such unique personalities, all of them, you know. Uh, but the way that it was done is crazy. They shot it full scale with a giant glass jar that would go over these people. And they sh they they shot it on like uh, with everything in front of black velvet drapes. And oh so what they, what they do is they would literally lay that piece of film over the next piece of film and the the black would like fade out with the film behind it and so they could focus on both things and you wouldn't get that like rear projection thing right. that would normally happen so it was like like a brilliant bit and then they, they would rotoscope 
which uh, for those of you that never watched movies made in the 70s or 80s uh rotoscoping is when you like hand draw over something they like rotoscoped the table in front of the the, the the jars it's like brilliant the way that this special effect is done and it looks really good you can actually see pretorius's hand moving back and forth while the lilliputians are moving it's like wow this is fucking amazing and, and this is 1935 right and and you know it's I'm not going to claim that I'm not impressed by computer special effects. You know, there, there's, there's amazing, amazing. There's artistry that, there. Yeah. That, that, that they do. And yeah, there's artistry there, but when it comes, but it's the, the creativity of doing something with CGI. It can, it can absolutely never match the bizarre ideas that people used to have to come up with to do these things with practical effects. Like it's just, it, it can't be touched. Like, I mean, like, and like you said, like yeah, rotoscoping and stuff like that. But yeah, this idea of like, well, we put this piece of film on that piece of film and, and then we smash them together. That type of stuff, like that type of innovation. Again, this is this is where that stuff started. And all of those things that you see happening in all of those movies that we've talked about, this is where it's coming from. Movies like this. There's um, there's something that's lost with computer effects. And I, I think it, it does make for a more immersive film-going experience when you're never questioning whether something is right. happening. In, in you know in movie reality right um however as um as someone who likes to enjoy the making of movies right um there is something taken away by the fact that i question oh was that a computer effect was that yeah. a computer effect right because you can literally do anything these days yeah right um and and th i think there is something taken away when there are no limitations right right it, it does let the artist in you come out right but i also enjoy like traditional 2d animation yeah. you know and i feel like you could always go to that when when there wasn't uh i mean fuck uh, one of my favorite sci-fi movies of all time the forbidden planet uh that's what they did they did 2d animation for the invisible monster yep and it worked really well. You know, they got Disney animators to do it. So, of course, it was going to look good, right? Um, but that's that's one of those things where it's like when you start looking at older movies and you were limited by technology and yet you were still able to pull things off. Yeah. That's when I'm thinking, how the fuck did they do that? Right. How did they do that? Right. You like, know, whereas today, like I never questioned. It's just yeah. like eh, it was a computer. Like that, and like uh, I've been, I've been, you know, I've been watching Peacemaker. I right, watched mm -hmm. Peacemaker. The season's over. Eagly is incredible, right? Eagly is this great character. You immediately know that Eagly was at no point a real eagle, like on set. <laughs> but it, you know, it doesn't bother me. But yeah, I was never, you know, it was like I was never like, huh. Wonder how they made that happen. It's like, oh, well, just some amazing artist created one of the most lifelike animals I've ever seen. Uh, on and and yes, you're right. There is a there is a depth of artistry there that is light years beyond anything I could imagine doing. But I never once was like, man, how did they pull that off? Because yeah. we're just used to that. But yeah, like 
I like hearing you talk about you know, like they actually put like this giant piece of glass in front of them. I'm like that's fucking incredible. They like, I was it. like I was I was watching a I was watching a YouTube video about like how they used to use uh, how they used to use angles to film Charlie Chaplin stuff. So it looked like mm-hmm. he was like defying death when really he was just hanging like that far off the ground. You know, he wasn't actually hanging off right. a clock tower that was bent over and stuff like that. But it was all just done with angles. And mm-hmm. so it's funny, you know, because we say, you know, there's this defining line, between, but that was special effects that how you position the camera forced perspective. That's yeah. a special effect. And it's just it's 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 a wild thing to go back and see that people have been able to pull off these amazing things as long as movies have been around. Absolutely. So we've mentioned him numerous times, but we are not going to get out of this podcast without just dedicating a section of this to the man, the myth, the legend that was James Whale. This guy brought so much to the screen in all of the movies that you've referenced. And just in this particular movie, he took camp, he took horror and all of those things. You know, I didn't grow up with the universal monsters, but I definitely grew up with campy horror. I grew up with Rocky horror and tremors. Yeah, Right. There we go. But Again, the seeds of those things are in this. So when you just look at James Whale, and we've talked about a lot of it, but what does he bring to this film for you? He is a visionary. Exact uh, like there's, word I there's, had written there's, down right here. Is it? Okay, fantastic. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's certain directors where, um, like, they're storytellers. Or there's uh, like George Lucas, he's a storyteller, right? Right, and and then you have certain directors that are um, like really good at like all around stuff. Like they're just like the the jack of all trades, except they're like masters at everything, right? Right, not master of none. Like Billy Wilder is one of those guys that comes to mind. You know, fucking Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard. Um, the apartment. I mean, you fucking name it. The guy filmed it and like it's the greatest in that genre, whatever it is, right? And then you have visionary directors, guys like James Cameron, right? Where it's like, you know, okay, this is the vision in my head and I'm putting it down for you. I think John Carpenter is another one of those guys, right? To kind of keep it a little bit more horror related, right? Uh, James Whale's one of these guys. I think that. In his mind, he composed shots and then told his cinematographer, this is what I want you to do. And the cinematographer did it. And he was like, "Mm, let's try that again. Right. And then they and and you and you kept going. And it's you see it almost from you see it in the very first shot as, as you're coming in on that castle. Right. And that transition, that editing is so smooth from outside the castle to inside the castle, right? Uh, where the Shelleys are, right? And and then when it transitions into the story, you see it again. The composition of that shot with the burning windmill is absolutely gorgeous because you see mountains in the background, you see people in the foreground, and in the middle is that burning building. And the way all of it is composed is just fucking chef's kiss. Yes. I mean, it is, it's incredible. The way that he uh, he hides the monster using black and white film stock, particularly in um, 
underneath the mill. Yes. Right. You almost don't even know that the monster's there until his face is in view. Right. Because you see his hand come about and you're like, oh, what was that? Was that a little bit of like water trickling down? And his suit is all wet and torn apart and it's meshing with the with the stone so perfectly. It's brilliant the way that he composes these shots. Um Many coming into the town gates crying that the monster's out. The way that those shadows are cast from, from atop the, 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 the village wall, right? It's gorgeous. His use of lighting, like it's very, I, I mentioned German expressionism before. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, look it up. It's, uh, it's, it's basically a style of shooting that was born in Germany in, uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, you can go as far back as something like the cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari. And and that's apparently something that he screened for the crew multiple times. It's one of the very first horror movies. Um, and it's um, where Conrad Veidt, who is a very famous actor from around this time, got his start. He's the guy who the Joker is originally based on, the okay. comic book Joker. Uh, he had this like rictus grin. And uh, from a movie called The Man Who Laughs. And that's that's where uh, where it comes from. And so like he was a real big fan of this kind of lighting and this kind of shooting. His camera movement is brilliant. Uh, I, I mentioned his invention of the 360 degree panning shot. He does something very subtle, but so brilliant when they're bringing Henry into Castle Frankenstein. The camera does um, – uh, he uses something called a jib shot, which is kind of like a crane shot but on a smaller scale where the camera starts very far away and it kind of moves around the pillars in Castle Frankenstein and it comes in until it edits and it cuts to – you know, looking at the people standing around the table where Henry has been laid. It's a beautiful shot, establishes the majesty of this place and how many people are, in fact, concerned about Henry. Right. But then when it edits and it cuts to, you know, this very close view of the table, it's a very intimate moment between Elizabeth and who she thinks is, you know, the body of Henry right? until he's alive. And it's like, Oh no, it's Elizabeth and Henry. And it's a very intimate moment for them. Right. But just off in, 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 in the side there, there's many fucking stealing the show <laughs> every right? time. I fucking love it. I fucking love that. Right. There's also this great shot. And I said, I was going to mention it and I'm mentioning it now. When we first meet Pretorius, there's this amazing shot where He's walking through the door. He's forcing his way through the door when he announces who he is. And the camera zooms in on him as he's walking through the door to create this very jarring effect where the camera's uh, now in this like really tight close up. And it's a really great way of introducing this character, making you uncomfortable in his presence. Right. And then he doesn't use it throughout the entire movie. It's only done in like one specific scene. But he starts throwing Dutch angles at you, which is yes. when the camera is like off kilter, right? Very famously or infamously, depending on how you feel about it, done in the Batman uh, TV show from the 60s, <laughs> right? I'm a huge fan of that show. Hey. And they used to use it all the time for yep. the villains, right? Tim Burton actually recycled it for um, 
for some uh, for the live action Batman movies. And I think it, you know, it works quite well. There's a reason why it has a name. And if it has a name, it's because it's good and it's used. Right. And a Dutch angle. He uses the Dutch angle a couple of times in uh, in the experiment when they're giving life to the bride and it's it's just before the experiment starts the dutch angle comes in and the camera it's it's a jarring effect it it comes in and it's like oh shit something's about to happen right there's this snap in henry henry has been so far waffling back and forth is he going to do it is he not going to do it and there's this when he finally commits to making the bride for real right um which he never he, he never accomplishes in the book. In the book, he agrees to make the bride, and as he's about to do it, he completely disassembles her, and okay. um and so th- he's he, he decides this is what he's going to do right to save Elizabeth. Uh, that's when the Dutch angle comes in because his his soul now is being like torn into he's doing the evil deed with pretorius even if it's for his his wife right um so and i i, I use that terminology very purposefully he's right. doing the deed with pretorius <laughs> to save his wife so it's uh, it, th- there's so much here you know and we've we've talked about uh you know how much he infused into this you know the 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 subtext that's there um the way that he lights both henry and pretorius in uh in that that experiment is just oh my god it's so awesome uh with henry you see more light bathed behind him because he doesn't want to be doing this there is good in henry right? right uh whereas with pretorius it's totally black behind him and the only light on pretorius is shining from beneath him up onto him and so his face is illuminated in this in this really exaggerated manner and it's it's a it's a beautiful beautiful way to light him but it's horrifying it's terrifying and he's got this crazed look in his eye i I mean this is a man who really has control of every single frame that he shoots i could not have said any of that better like i like i said the word i had written in my notes was that it, it it's visionary it was every we back when we did hereditary we talked about how ari aster obviously knew exactly what he wanted and mm-hmm. did not rest until it was accomplished exactly the way it looked in his mind and that's what i got from this was i got that we had a director here who relentlessly pursued the exact movie he wanted to be seen made. So you have hit all of the technical aspects of the movie. There was a a couple of things, but there were a couple extra things that I love that I assume are directorial decisions. One thing I I mentioned earlier was I love this idea of coming from Frankenstein, the first one, where it just said as the monster with the question marks. But now that he's established, his name is above everything else. Also, I think mm-hmm. it's just, I, I don't know enough about old movies, but I love, was 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 it just in the Frankenstein movies that he was just billed as Karloff? Or is that how he was just always no, billed? So he, was, um, he was more or less a nobody when, okay. um, when they made Frankenstein. He was 44 years old when the first Frankenstein was made. And so he was a struggling actor. Um, I don't know if he had done many uh, films. I know that he had done stage shows before. Um, But part of the reason why he's so gaunt 
in that first film is because he was literally a starving actor. Okay. Um, so like he was like living job to job, hoping that he would one day make it. And so when he hits it big as the monster and he gets this contract with Universal where he's now, uh, you know, he's Ardeth Bay and he's the mummy. Right. right. Um, and, and he becomes this like really bankable star for them. Uh, that last name, Karloff, becomes so recognizable that they just start billing him as Karloff. Okay. You so, know, kind of like Schwarzenegger, where, right. you know, it was just like big and bold on, on the front of that poster. Yeah. It's just Schwarzenegger. And so just to, to, to take that and put it above everything else, just genius, because the, the first Frankenstein movie is is the story of the monster but it's just as much the story about you know actual frankenstein you know the, this idea of playing god but this movie is about the monster so you put him above everything else but then you still pay homage to that original but with uh, the bride with the question marks i loved that the one of the very first things i noticed though was in the opening credits it says, um, you know, based on a story by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, right? Mm -hmm. Like her full name. And the reason that stuck out to me is because I remember the first time I saw the, um, the original Frankenstein. And it says, based on a story by Mrs. Percy Shelley mm -hmm. in the original Frankenstein. And so I thought that that just... That seems, you know, for especially for the time, that's that's very progressive to then make sure that you're giving that you're giving due credit where it's due. Like this woman wasn't just the the wife of Percy Shelley; she is the creator of this. And so to put her name in front of the movie, her full ass government name, yeah. like just like here it all is, like including is her maiden everything. name. Yeah, it's yeah. all right there. Like yeah. it's just that that's an incredible level of progressiveness, especially for 1935. And like that that hit me right away when I saw that huge ass name on there. I was like, whoa. And so little things like that uh, just to, to tie that back to uh, a, a name I threw out earlier, Carl Lamely. Right, who was uh, the the studio head of Universal Studios? He employed more female directors in the '30s than any studio would have for decades later. Okay, uh, I think I I heard somewhere that it was something in in uh, in the number of like thirty different female directors working in the '30s. Right. Um, which was like no other studio had that and wouldn't have it for for decades, you know, um, and uh, not to do with that. Uh, but I remember when I first read Frankenstein uh, or the modern Prometheus, you know, the whole title in high school. And one of the things that I was taught was that for many, many years, um, Mary Shelley was not given her due credit right uh her name wasn't even put on the first uh publication of the book and for uh maybe partly because of that um but she there was always this question early on uh whether she wrote it or her husband wrote it and when you read 
Percy Shelley's writing. I mean, he's nowhere near the writer she is. Right. Um, I mean, he's uh, I think he is the perfect example of a failed poet living off of the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the great success of his wife. And I think that he was never able to live that down. And maybe he even started that. You know, that's that's uh, that rumor that he wrote it. That's something that I've heard amongst the, 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 the scholarly circles yeah, in, in, in academia. Right. Right. Um, it is, it is a prevailing rumor, you know? So the fact that like there, there was at least early on, uh, and and for at least a hundred years, hundred and fifty years, this idea that maybe she didn't write the book, um, or at the very least, it was her idea, and that Percy wrote it, right? right. Um, like that's fucking awful. So to, you're right to see her name front and center. Yes, all the all of the name, like that's that's awesome. Yeah, it was just like it was. I, I can I can, based on just based on what I know in my 38 years of how far, you know, women and and acknowledging their contributions to society has come. I can only <laughs> imagine that in the 30s, giving that much credit to a woman was a big, big deal. And mm-hmm. so I, I just I loved that. My And like I said, my favorite thing that he brought to this movie was perfectly used camp right Mm -hmm. these these ideas of you can have breaks in the horror that lets you laugh but you're supposed to early early on in the movie i think it's right as the monster kind of crawls out of the windmill uh like the the i guess like a well or whatever underneath the windmill when he crawls out of that and he starts just like ragdolling villagers right (laughs) and he's just smacking them all over the place like in between each time he would smack the shit out of a villager, it would cut to this owl who was 100% unimpressed, did not yeah. give a fuck <laughs> what the monster was doing. And I was like, and immediately that's when I was like, okay, this guy wants me to occasionally laugh. And it's mm. such a simple shot. And it's such an early, it's so early on in the movie, but it so perfectly sets this tone of, it's okay to occasionally view this with some brevity, you yeah. know, to, to, um, to not make you just sit there and labor through wondering whether or not you're supposed to be able to laugh at this stuff. It immediately establishes we're, we're making a movie and movies are supposed to be fun. And I think that one thing is as much as I do love a movie that that just keeps you on the edge of your seat and you're you're tense the whole time. It is important to remember that things, you know, you're supposed to enjoy these things. And by doing little things like that, it opens it up to a much broader audience. It it makes it easier to be relaxed and just kind of let the film wash over you. And so bringing in that camp and using it so perfectly like that, it's just, it's just the lightest touch, right? It's just that it's, it's just enough of the sprinkling of the salt that, you know, it's there, but it's not overpowering anything. And that I think is what set this so far beyond anything I expected from it was that perfectly used camp element. Um, if you haven't seen the invisible man, 
in some I, time. I have not ever seen the Invisible ever Man seen it. or the Wolfman. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, the Wolfman is not James Whale. Right. Uh, I can't remember who it is that directed the Wolfman. Uh, the Wolfman does have some humor, but it is more of a, a sober piece, um, very much in the vein of like the first Dracula and right um, and the the first Frankenstein. Um, but does feature Bella Lugosi in a rather uh, important role. And Claude Rains plays uh, the Wolfman's father, Lon Chaney Jr.'s father. Uh, and Claude Rains is the Invisible Man. Yes, uh, that I in, know. in the original Invisible Man. Um, and he, uh, so the Invisible Man has a bit of camp in it as well. Okay. Um, and Claude Rains plays the character so campy, so over the top that uh it, it actually adds to the horror i think the fact that he is so insane right um but it also um gives the movie this you know like horror comedy feel to it um you know the horror comedy was not born with return of the living dead you know <laughs> uh the horror comedy was not born with sleepaway camp you know it's it's very easy to to think these things you know uh or even dawn of the dead you know it's it's very easy to think that you know oh yeah you know that's that's an older movie so that's where that started. You know, we always associate that stuff there. Uh, and, and James Whale was one of these guys who, like, back in the 30s, like, literally when talkies were being invented, <laughs> was doing horror comedies. Uh, but to a much bigger extent than The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House, uh, which was his follow-up to Frankenstein, that is a real, like, honest-to-goodness horror comedy boris karloff is there um elsa lanchester's husband Car uh charles lawton plays a, a a really important role in that one um and and it is a, a a real campy um horror comedy and yeah. uh and, and and we he kind of perfected it here i yeah. think in, so, in bride of frankenstein it was just a that 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 element of it because uh, like uh, my part part of my love for horror movies comes from my mom's specific love of campy ones and so again uh, like i've said it's probably the hundredth time this episode to get back to the roots of it it was this this movie was a it was a horror movie pilgrimage for me that i never knew i needed to make <laughs> it was it it was this I did not realize how much I needed to see this movie until I was watching it. I'm so glad to hear you say that <laughs> because we're moving into ratings and uh, we have decided that out of a possible five blind hermits right now, for those of you that have never listened to the podcast before, we only rate movies against themselves, uh, which is why we don't do stars, right? Because uh, if we give this a certain number of stars, we also need to give another movie that is Correct. totally unlike it, the, you know, uh, uh, the number of stars. And, and that's not fair to that movie or to this movie. Uh, so we are give we are rating it out of blind hermits. All right. Uh, so Daniel, out of a possible five blind hermits how many blind hermits do you give this this movie exceeded any and all expectations i had this movie showed me the roots of so many things that i love 
This movie had special effects that stand to this day. This movie has taken on an identity of its own in multiple communities. Um, and I just loved watching it. I cannot think of a single thing about this movie that I would change, that I would want to be different. Um, I am going to, I, I'm this just standing the test of time and continuing to be something that's this big, seeing how influential this is, I would view it as a disservice to do anything less than hang hang a gold on this one and give it that that coveted six out of five <laughs> blind hermits that we established with Candyman. It's yeah. There's there there's there's nothing. This movie is flawless we've been here for 90 minutes and have done nothing but sing the praises of things as small as the opening credits to as big as special effects that change over the course of the movie that bring it to another level there's nothing that could be done to make this movie better and then that extra blind hermit that that golds it out <laughs> is the fact that it set the bar for so many things. You can't refer to anything in this movie as cliche or trope because no. this is where, this is the birth of those cliches and tropes. Um, I am also going to give this six out of five blind hermits. Um, I knew uh, when th there's certain universal monster movies that I, a, a lot of them would get perfect scores for me. Right. If you're if you're gonna listen in the future and it's like, hey, we're doing you know uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, or we're gonna do uh, you know the original Frankenstein, or like fucking you know Frankenstein's daughter or something, you know, <laughs> uh, Dracula's daughter, um, might get a perfect score from me. You know, it's very likely. Um, this one I knew was gonna be one of those, but more than that, like it is the most perfect out of all of them. Right. So, uh, I mean, anything less than six out of five, like you, you have, you, you have to go the extra mile. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you, you have, you have to ragdoll one more person, you know, <laughs> you, you, you have to have one more, uh, one more cigar from a blind hermit. You have to shove one God. more violin in a, in a, in a blind hermit's hands. How you know? fucking great is that scene of the monster puffing on a cigar? Right, like it's just, it's and just then like, saying, then saying, smoke good. Yeah, just, just <laughs> like that. That level of growth out of that character is is so unbelievably good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's absolutely perfect, and um. I'm actually going to do something that uh, we have never done before. I have not discussed with you, Daniel, and we're not going to find the average. Hey, <laughs> we're going to we're we're going to add. So this gets add. this this gets 12 blind. <laughs> hey. All right. Um. <laughs> I like it. I like it. There we go. If so there, if there was that there was a movie that's deserving. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, because um, because even Candyman owes so much to these movies yeah uh and 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 you know uh, maybe not bride of frankenstein in particular but certainly the first frankenstein yes um you know there's 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 so much there um 
you know, and and actually, you know what? I would say that it does owe uh, quite a bit to Bride of Frankenstein as well, because you see a lot more of the like persecution of the monster in this than you do in the first one, uh, even though it's obviously present. And and that is uh, Danny Robitaille's story. Yep. You know, uh, that is the Candyman story. Yeah. So uh, so there you go. A whopping 12 out of five <laughs> blind hermits uh, for the most perfectest sto- uh, score we have ever given. Yes. Uh, that is the Bride of Frankenstein, ladies and gentlemen. And so if you've enjoyed this, make sure that you check us out on all your social medias. We are at ShiverPod. Um, we didn't do it this week. It's been a crazy week with the holiday and my parents were in town. We did slip up a little bit, but we do tend to try to let you know what movies are going to be coming up. Um, also make sure you keep an eye on our social medias. We are toying with the idea of maybe trying something new next week. I'm trying to work out a couple kinks and figure out exactly how it'll work. That announcement will be coming soon on our social media. If you, uh, if it happens also calendar for March will be coming out. We've got a great March planned out. We're going to be hitting some of the major holidays and things like that. So if you check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at ShiverPod, you will find all of those things, or you can head to ShiverPod.com where you will be linked to our Geek Bro website where you can find not only all of our episodes, but you can also find episodes from the Geek Bro Network of our other shows like Mount Geekmore with Dave and I, What's Up Bro, Pedo Let Me Tell You, Comedy Fitness, Kick Flicks, uh, Seasons, um, and Crimecopia, our sister podcast. Yeah. So make sure you head to geekbro.net or shiverpod.com for all of that. Absolutely. So on behalf of all of us here on Shiver, Fright you very much.